But it is a joy to be with you guys here this morning. Let me invite you, if you would, to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. This morning we're actually going to look at four verses that we're going to connect together that you may not even ordinarily associate these four verses t- together. But hopefully at the end of this morning you'll understand how they come together. But our foundational passage is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. And it says this. I have fought the good fight. This is Paul speaking. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I've kept the faith. We're going to camp out on that very first phrase that says, I have fought the good fight. I want to talk a little bit this morning about fighting the good fight. Now, when I first read this passage and he says, I fought the good fight, some, some questions come into my mind immediately. Like, who is he fighting? And what is he fighting? What is he fighting for? Is he fighting to keep something? Is he fighting to gain something? How is he fighting? What's a good fight look like? He calls us a good fight. What is a good fight? What's a bad fight? Some of you guys that watch fights, you may say, man, that was a really good fight. Or you may say, man, that was a bad fight. What makes a good fight? Did he win the fight? Is it possible to fight a good fight but still lose the fight? These are some of the questions I ask myself. Now, me personally, I'm not a fighter. I've never actually been in what I would call just an all-out, duke-it-out fight. Now, I've been in a couple of those nose-to-nose where you talk about your mama and trash talk a little bit. (laughs) I've even been in a couple of little shoving matches from time to time when I was younger, but never been in just just an all-out fight, and don't really want to be, for that matter. But the closest thing I came to being in that kind of fight was the summer between my 6th and 7th grade year. I was with a good friend, we're in my backyard, and I don't even remember now what caused the fight, but we got into this fight, and so he swung first, and I kind of ducked, and so he just whiffed, so I came back, not with a jab, but with this crazy just forearm, just smash kind of thing, and he turned his back like this, so I come to hit him on his back, and I swung so hard that my tooth fell out. Now, I had a loose tooth at the time, so I just swung so hard, I hit him, my tooth fell out. The fight was over. I was so excited, my tooth finally fell out. I just picked it up and ran home into the house to tell my mom. So was that a good fight? Was that a bad fight? I don't know. But Paul calls this a good fight. And so let's define that. What is Paul talking about when he said, I fought the good fight? Well, I think there are at least two elements here involved in the fight, so we know what we're talking about. And the first element is faith, or the faith, our faith if you will. If you look back in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, Paul now is encouraging Timothy, a young pastor, and he says in 1 Timothy 6, 12, fight the good fight of faith. In 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19, he says, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by following them, you may fight the good fight, holding on to the faith. In our foundational passage here in 2 Timothy, after he says, I fought the good fight, he said, I've kept the faith. So we know, number one, that this fight has to do with us keeping the faith, holding on to the faith, not bailing out on our faith whenever things get really difficult. But the second aspect is Jesus Christ himself. Because when Paul makes this statement, I fought the good fight, really what he's doing is reflecting back on his life. He's getting toward the end of his life. He knows that he's getting close to death. And so he's reflecting back on how he's lived his life. And as he thinks through the way he's lived his life, he says, man, I fought a good fight. 
So to understand what that fight's about, we have to understand what Paul's life was all about. Well, when you go to Scripture, Scripture's very clear about what Paul's life was all about, and it was all about Jesus Christ. In Philippians 3.10, Paul says, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. So right off the bat, we see that he wants to know Christ. Not only does he want to know him in the power of his resurrection, all of us want that. All of us want to experience the power of the resurrection. But he says, also, I want to know him in the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. In other words, Paul wanted to know Christ in the deepest, most intimate way possible. He goes on to say, becoming like him in his death. So we see he wants to become like Christ. In Philippians 1.22, Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ. So he wants to live for Christ. Ephesians 3, 7, he says, I've become a servant of this gospel of Christ. So now we see he wants to serve Christ. Verse 8 goes on and says that this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this ministry. So when we look at Paul's life, we see that Paul's life was about knowing Christ, becoming like Christ, living for Christ, serving Christ, sharing Christ. Everything was about Christ. So this morning, when we talk about fighting the good fight, this is what we're talking about. Number one, not bailing out on our faith during difficult days and making our life a passionate pursuit, a lifelong pursuit of knowing Christ, becoming like Christ, living for Christ, serving Christ, sharing Christ. That's this good fight that we're talking about this morning. Now, it's interesting that Paul calls this a good fight. That word good in the Greek simply means best. It means excellent. It means right. It means worthy. In other words, what Paul is saying is this is the right fight. This is the best fight that you could be involved in. If you're, if you're going to fight for something, which we all fight for something in life, but if you're going to fight for something, this is what you ought to be fighting for. It's good, but it is a fight. And because it's a fight, it implies an opponent. It applies an enemy. It implies a struggle. It implies some resistance. So it's a great thing to be involved in, but it's not going to be an easy thing to be involved in. It's really good, but it's a fight. So let's talk about this good fight a little bit. I wanted to develop it a little bit now with these three other verses. Again, ordinarily you might not connect these three verses together, but hopefully this morning you'll see how they do connect a little bit together. But these verses hopefully will help us understand this good fight a little better. How do we fight it? Why are we fighting? What are some of the elements involved in this good fight? Here's the first one. It's what I'm going to call the purpose. And it's found in John 10.10. And that verse says that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. This is Jesus speaking. He says, but I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Now, to understand really what he's talking about here, you have to get the context of the verse uh, and to get the context, you look at the, the verses previous. So the first several verses in chapter 10, we see Jesus giving a very practical illustration. Something that would be visible to the hearers in that time that would make very clear sense. And he's talking about a sh some sheep and a sheep pen and a gatekeeper. So I don't have this with me this morning, but I want you to use your imagination for a moment and picture this scene when Jesus is talking to these people and what he's talking about. In those verses, he says, first... There are this huge sheep pen. And in this big sheep pen are many sheep. 
And at the front of this sheep pen is a big gate. And in front of that gate is a gatekeeper. So this is the picture that he's painting to his hearers as he talks about. And it's in this context of this sheep pen and a gate and the sheep that Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. So the first question I ask myself is, who's the thief? Who's Jesus talking about when he says the thief comes? Well, maybe he's talking about a literal thief because he's talking about a a literal illustration. So maybe he's talking about a literal thief because in that day thieves would come to steal and kill the sheep. So it could be that the thief would come to steal the sheep. Now, when a thief comes, the thief's not going to walk around to the front of the sheep gate and go to the gatekeeper and say, hey, will you let me in your gate so I can steal and kill some of your sheep? What is he going to do? He's going to stay back here in the shadows and in the darkness, and he's going to lurk around, and he's going to roam around waiting for that opportunity where he can come in and steal and kill the sheep. So maybe he's talking about little sheep. Maybe he's talking about what I call wolves, because wolves would come and take the sheep as well. And we know in Scripture that Jesus talked a lot about wolves in sheep clothing, those false teachers, those false prophets who acted like they loved the sheep, but they really only love themselves. So maybe that's who he's talking about. And I think he's probably talking about both of those. But ultimately, I think he's primarily talking about a spiritual connotation. And the thief he's really talking about is Satan himself. In 1 Peter 5, 8, it says that our enemy, the devil, roams around and prowls around seeking whom he may devour. Looking for someone that he may devour. So I think really what Jesus is trying to put in the picture here is that you have the sheep, you have the sheep gate, you have the guard here, but now you've got this enemy who is Satan himself. He's not going to the front. He's lurking around in the shadows and in the darkness, and he's just waiting for that opportunity that he can jump and attack the sheep and still kill and destroy the sheep. Here's the purpose. I'm getting back to the purpose point now. As we fight the good fight, here's the purpose we need to remember. Satan has one purpose, and that's to take life from you. That's his only purpose. Now, if he can take your eternal life, if he can grab you before you give your life to Christ and steal, your, and steal that salvation opportunity, then that's what he wants to do. But if he can't, if you've already given your life to Christ and he can't take your eternity, he wants to take that joy-filled life. He wants to take that purpose-filled life. He wants to take that abundant life that God promises. But Satan has one purpose in mind, and that's to take life from you. But our John 10.10 10 goes on to say, what is Jesus going to say after that? But I have come that you might have life. So here's the purpose statement that we have to remember and get in our spirit as we fight this good fight. Satan has one purpose, that's to take life from you. God has a purpose, and that's to give life to you. The problem, though, is sometimes it's easy to get that confused. It's easy to get that messed up. It's easy to begin to think that maybe God's trying to take life from me, and maybe Satan really does want to give life to me. How does that happen? How do we get that so confused? Well, let me give you one other illustration. In Scripture, um, it talks about boundary stones in several places. And I'm going to use this little rock as an example of a boundary stone. Now, typically back in the day, a boundary stone would be either a, a really big rock, a big stone, or it might be a pile of stones. But we'll use this one. And in several places in Scripture, God says, don't move boundary stones. 
Because in the Old Testament, boundary stones served two purposes. They served as property lines, and they served as inheritance. They marked people's property, and they marked people's inheritance. So God said, don't move boundary stones, because when you do, you're messing with people's property, and you're messing with people's inheritance. So don't move them. Well, then in Scripture, God brings a spiritual twist to it, and spiritually speaking, God says, don't move my boundary stones. So let me illustrate that a little bit. When we talk about boundary stone, now we're talking about God's boundary. In God's Word, He has given us some boundaries. Right and wrong. Ways to please Him, things that don't please Him. Lifestyles that is part of God's plan, part of His design. Other lifestyles and habits that are not part of His plan, not part of His design. Things that He said we should be involved in. Other things we should not be involved in. That's the boundary. So, we're living on this side of the boundary stone, the correct side. Where we're living for God. We're living within God's design and God's purpose. On the other side of the boundary stone, those lifestyles, habits, etc., that God says, don't participate in that, it's not part of my plan. But when we're on this side of the boundary stone, we have the tendency to look across the boundary stone and we see things on the other side that are very appealing, very attractive, very appetizing, fun. And we say, man, I would really like to participate in that lifestyle or that activity. I'd like to do that over there. But we don't want to do that because we see God's boundary stone. We don't want to cross the boundary stone because if we cross the boundary stone, we're going to feel guilty because we feel like we're doing something that we're not supposed to be doing. So we don't want to cross the boundary stone. So what do we do instead? Well, instead, we just move the boundary stone so we can step into that lifestyle and into that activity and and try to trick ourselves into thinking that I'm still where God wants me to be because I'm still on the correct side of the boundary stone. Some other time, we look across again, we see something else that looks attractive and looks appealing and looks like it's really fun. So we want to participate. We don't want to cross the boundary stone because we're going to feel guilty that we're doing something wrong. So what do we do? We just move the boundary stone again. Now we can step over into this thing and we've convinced ourselves that God really didn't say X, Y, Z, that he's really saying this. And so I keep moving and we have to finish the movement. And our, that's what our culture's doing all the time right now. We just keep moving the boundary stone farther and farther and farther and farther. But the crazy part is the boundary stone never moved. <laughs> the boundary stone's still over there. We've just tricked ourselves and acted like we can live over here and and that God's going to ordain this. But what happens is we begin to lose that life-giving substance. We're not experiencing life as God intended. That's what that word means. Why? We think something's wrong. Well, it's because we've just messed everything up. But here's the main point I'm trying to make in this talking about the purpose we're talking about how we can get this confused sometimes between who's giving life when I'm on the right side of the boundary and I see something that's really fun really appealing really appetizing over here it's easy for me to begin to think why is God keeping that from me why does God say don't participate in that he must be trying to keep me from having life And if that's so fun and so appealing, that's what Satan offers. Satan must be wanting to give me life. That's so attractive. And if we're not careful, we buy into that lie and we get everything messed up. Here's the point I'm really trying to make here on this very first thing. Here's the truth. No matter how Satan appears, 
No matter how appealing or attractive what he has looks, he has one purpose in mind, and that's to take life from you. No matter how difficult what God asks is, no matter how restrictive he appears to be, what God does, what God offers, and what God rejects is all about helping you experience life in him. So as you fight the good fight, we have to keep in context and in the proper order the purpose. Satan's purpose is to take life from you. God's purpose is to give life to you. And that leads us into the second parameter here. It's what I'm going to call the promise. And it's from 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, which says, The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The one who's in you as a believer, as a follower of Christ, God himself, the Holy Spirit who dwells within you is greater than the one who's in the world. And that's great news because here's what that means. Satan has one purpose. What? To take life from you. God has a purpose to give life to you. But the promise is God is so much greater, he's able to thwart Satan's life-taking plan and execute his life-giving plan to you. Because he is so much greater. Let me invite you, if you've got a, a, a copy of the word, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. I want to read a couple of verses here in Ephesians 6 that really give us some great insight about this fight. What it looks like, who we are actually fighting, and put into context this dynamic of how much greater he is. Ephesians 6, 10 says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This fight's identified here in Ephesians. It's not a physical fight. It's not a flesh and blood fight. It's a spiritual fight, which is great news. Because if we try to fight this fight in our own flesh, and our own power, we're going to be defeated and annihilated because we are no match for the spiritual enemy. But the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And that spiritual deity is so much greater in this spiritual fight that if we'll trust in his power, we'll be victorious. That's why he says in verse 10 of that passage, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. That word mighty also means power, but it means a stronger power. Paul really could have said, be strong in the Lord and in his power power. This greater power, this stronger power. And it's this kind of power that has a, the, the root word has, it talks about completeness or utter. In other words, God is so strong that he has complete and utter dominance over the enemy. There's no competition, there's no fight, there's no battle. Ephesians 1.19 says it this way. I pray you know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. We're talking about the power that raised Christ from the dead. It's this dunamis power. It's the word we get dynamite from. It's this explosive power, this dynamic power. It's, a, it's the power that's associated with armies and hosts. And it's the power that's inherent. In other words, God doesn't have to go to an external source somewhere to find this power. This power is inherent within himself. 
And it's this great power that overcomes the enemy. When he gets to verse 12, he gives us a great truth here that you can't miss. In verse 12, it identifies who we're fighting against. And it says we're fighting against the rulers, the authorities, the powers, and the spiritual forces in the dark realm. In other words, the opponents of God, this evil system that is opposing God, that's who we're fighting against. One of the questions I had when I first read it is, is why didn't he just say we're fighting Satan? Why does he break it down and say we're fighting the rulers and the authorities and the powers and the spiritual forces? Why does he get so specific? Well, if you look back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, this is why. In that passage, it says that God seated him, and him being Jesus Christ. God seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Now, this word far above is a poetic way of saying far superior, far greater. It's using distance. In other words, he's saying all these spiritual people are way down here. The spiritual forces are way down here. And God is so far above them. He's so far superior, so, so far better. There's no comparison. But the interesting part here is who we're fighting against. We are fighting against the rulers, the powers, the authorities, and the spiritual forces. And who is God greater than? Those very same rulers and authorities and powers and dominion. We don't fight in our own strength. That's why he says, be strong in my mighty power because he is so great. There's no comparison. Let me illustrate the the distance dynamic here for you. I did a little search uh, about distances from earth to different planets. And some of you may remember these from science. But the distance from earth to the moon, if you remember, is 238,900 miles. Well, from earth to the sun is 92.96 million miles. From earth to Pluto, this surprised me. I didn't know Pluto was this far. Pluto is 2.7 billion miles away. Well, evidently, several years ago, uh, we discovered a new galaxy. And the the name of this galaxy is MACS0647-JD. That's the newest galaxy. And that galaxy is 76 sextillion, 254 quintillion, 48 quadrillion, and some odd miles away. I don't know how many zeros that is. Now, this is just a galaxy that somehow we've been able to find and measure. There are galaxies beyond that galaxy and beyond those galaxies. And somewhere when those end, God is beyond those galaxies. And he's using this this imagery of distance that God is so far above. He is so far greater. He is so far superior. There's no comparison. These little spiritual evil demons that we're fighting, they are absolutely no match for our God who is so far above them. That's great news because what it means is we can win this fight. We can live a victorious life. We can live a joy-filled life. We can live a power-filled life. We can defeat the temptations. We can say no to temptation. We can walk in joy. We can do all that because the one who's in us is greater than the one who's in the world. 
So Satan has a purpose. That's to take life from you. That's okay. Because the one who is, is in me is greater. And he can thwart that plan. If, and here's the third parameter. It's what I call the participation. This is our part. This is our involvement in this whole thing. And it comes from James 4, 7, which says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee. It's very simple. <laughs> it's very simple. Now, it's very simple to say, and it's very simple in theory. It's very difficult to live out. But here it is. Submit to God and resist the devil. You have an enemy who wants to take life from you. So resist him. There's a God who wants to give life to you. So submit to him. And when you do, you experience the kind of life that God has for us. Now again, for me, if you're like me, it's so easy to get this confused and backwards. So often in my life, I find myself resisting God and resisting what he's trying to say to me, resisting what he's trying to do in me. And I find myself submitting to the one who's tempting me and, re- and submitting to the temptation. And that's when I find myself in trouble. But if we can remember this simple pattern, submit to God and resist the devil. So being victorious in our Christian life, fighting the good fight and winning the fight, it's not about working harder. It's not about trying harder. It's not about striving more. It's about submitting more. It's about submitting more and more to the work of God, to the voice of God, to the word of God, to the spirit of God, to the conviction of God, submitting ourselves to what he's trying to do and say in us. And at the same time, resisting that one who brings something very attractive and very appealing, but it is death personified. So my prayer for all of us this morning as we allow the Spirit to kind of minister this word to us, is that we could say like Paul that I fought the good fight. Or better yet, that we can say today, I am fighting the good fight. I'm going to continue to fight the good fight. I'm not going to give up on my faith just because I'm walking through some difficult days. And my life is going to be consumed by a passionate pursuit of Jesus Christ. Where my life is going to be about knowing Him and becoming like Him. Living for Him. Sharing Him. Showing Him. Serving Him. While I do that, I'm going to remember that I can resist the one trying to take life. I can submit to the one who has come to give life. And if so, I'll be victorious in fighting this good fight. May our desire be that we will fight the good fight. Let me invite you, if you would, to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. We're going to have a time of ministry. The band's going to come and lead us in some music. It's going to be a a ministry team that will be up forward as well to just pray with anyone who would like some prayer, like to talk. If the Holy Spirit is speaking to you this morning, I pray that you'll just respond. And if that means to come forward to pray with someone, to talk with someone, then I invite you to do that. 
Uh, if it means staying where you are and just allowing the Spirit to minister to you, then I encourage you to do that. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, I've been submitting to the wrong one. I've been resisting the wrong one. And I need to change that. Maybe you're in difficult days and you've been tempted to give up on the fight and give up on the faith. And this morning, God's Spirit is saying, don't, because you can be victorious. I don't know what the Spirit may say to you. I, I just would plead with you that if the Spirit is speaking to your heart this morning, that you would, that you would be available and listen and allow the Spirit to say and move in you this morning. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and your love. We thank you this morning specifically for your power. Greater are you who's in us. Father, thank you that you've come to give us life. So, Father, I just pray in the next moments that your Holy Spirit would minister, would speak, and that we would respond. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand and respond as appropriate.